Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The US dollar is at a two decade high. That strength is causing all sorts of short term problems. And it's raising long-term questions about the greenback's enduring place in the global economy. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Forward. And in today's show, why the dollar has been on a tear. First, we'll find out what's behind its rise by getting some not free lunch. Um, can I have a filet fish meal? Just that, thank you. Medium. 9.85? Then we'll look at one theory that could explain what will happen to the dollar next. If you plotted the chart of the value of the currency versus the relative growth rate, you see a positively sloped chart. The faster the economy grows, usually you get a higher, stronger currency. That's very intuitive. But there's one currency, the US dollar, that has both features. It looks like a smile. Finally, we'll ask what it all means for the dollar. I would say that, you know, it has been an exorbitant privilege to have the global reserve currency, not an exorbitant burden. And its status as the world's dominant currency. Hello, Samaya and Alice. Hey, Mike. Hello. So last week's episode was about cryptocurrencies. This week we've done something completely different and we're going to talk about regular old fiat currencies. Look, we don't control the news cycle and the dollar is really strong right now. In July, it hit parity against the euro for the first time in 20 years. This year, it's up by 15% against the yen, 10% against the pound and 5% against the yuan. Which makes it an excellent time to be paid in good old USD. Yep, definitely. You've got to feel sorry for anyone who's paid in sterling at the moment. Thanks, guys. Thanks for sympathy. Uh, yeah, really great time for me to have booked a holiday to Washington, D.C. Um, so, Americans, if you see me wandering around looking hungry and sad, um, either buy me lunch or just, just move along and, and forget about it. Anyway, uh, it's worth pointing out that this is a pretty remarkable turn for the dollar. That is true. In January 2020, we dissected the argument that the increasing use of sanctions was hastening the demise of the dollar. But two and a half years later, that is clearly not the case. There are some cyclical reasons that the dollar is strong right now, like the strength of the American economy. But whenever it climbs sharply, it tends to beg a bigger question. That question has to do with the dollar's dominance, which we'll be covering in a special double bill. Next week, we'll look at the impact of a strengthening dollar on emerging markets. Nice pun there, Bill, for dollar. I, I like that. I've never used that before. I need to save that up for a headline sometime and steal it from you. Uh, but, but before I can steal it, we should first unpack just how strong the dollar is right now. I decided to ring up our Money Talk's favourite, Simon Rabinovich, our US economics editor, to find out. Can I place my order here, please? Um, can I have a filet fish 
He joined us from a very, uh, a very special location. Do you get many orders for filet fish? Or? Yeah, it's popular. Yeah. Oh, okay. As popular as the Big Mac. Do you want filet fish? I want filet fish. I want to know: Do people like the filet fish, or do they prefer the Big Mac? No comment. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Simon. Okay, first of all, please tell us where you are and then maybe tell us why you're there. Well, you might hear a bit of background noise right now, Mike, because I'm sitting in a uh, suburban McDonald's just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, about to tuck into my lunch. I got myself a uh, filet fish Happy Meal, which uh, it might be a sackable offense in economist land that I didn't go for a Big Mac, but I'm not really a Big Mac man, so... Uh, I've got myself a nice tender fish sandwich to to eat. I think that's acceptable. We're sort of liberal people at heart. But tell us why you've gone specifically to McDonald's and what this has to do with the strength of the US dollar. Well, the short answer is that I'm just following the orders of uh, our exceptional producer, Kim Gittleson, who uh, said that I had to come to McDonald's for lunch today. The longer answer is that it's uh, a discussion, of course, of the strong dollar and As anybody who's familiar with The Economist would know, one of our uh, key features over the years has been the Big Mac Index, which is used to illustrate uh, a fairly wonky concept known as purchasing power parity. The basic idea of which is that uh, a basket, a similar basket of goods and services around the world should, you know, in the long term, uh, equalize in price as determined by exchange rates. So we've used the Big Mac uh, historically to illustrate that, the idea, idea being that whether you buy a Big Mac in America, in Britain, uh, in Asia, anywhere, uh, the exchange rate should more or less equalize the price of that Big Mac. So this is this is probably one of the things, if someone knows The Economist for one thing, it may well be that we do the Big Mac index. We recently published an update to it. What did we find in the update? Well, what we found for, uh, you know, really for the past year, but, but I guess most extreme in the, in the most recent update, is just how remarkably strong uh, the dollar is. So again, starting with that basic idea that uh, a Big Mac anywhere in the world should, at least according to purchasing power parity, more or less be the same price. Uh, what in fact now the Big Mac index shows uh, is that, you know, if you're really craving a Big Mac or uh, arguably a filet fish uh, you'll find that it's a lot more expensive uh, in America uh, than it is in most other countries around the world. Uh, most other countries, you're looking at anywhere from a 10 to even 30 40% discount uh, relative to the dollar price uh, of a Big Mac. And that's really a big change. If you go back and you look at the Big Mac index uh, a decade ago, many places where Big Macs used to be relatively more expensive than in America are now quite a bit cheaper than in America. Just one more bit of evidence to suggest that the dollar is remarkably strong these days. That sort of 30 or 40% discount that you're talking about is is really large. Tell us a little bit more about what's behind this, why the dollar is really so strong. I think there's a triple whammy uh, behind it. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, America has been uh, amongst the most aggressive developed economies uh, in terms of raising interest rates an even wonkier theory uh, of exchange rates and the way they work is the idea of covered interest rate parity. And there the basic idea is that 
you know, assuming that all else is being held equal, if you get a higher rate of return in one currency, you'd expect that currency to be stronger. Interest rates have gone up uh, more in America than in other countries. That pushes the dollar higher. A second factor that has been underlying the strength of interest rates in America is the strength of the economy itself. So, of course, inflation is high in America. That's why the Fed is raising interest rates. Uh, Inflation is high around the world. But if you look at why inflation is high in America, say, as opposed to Europe, in America, really, it's reflecting excessive demand in the economy. In Europe, it's more things like high gas prices. Um, So the strength of the American economy you know, leads people in the markets to believe that one, interest rates will be higher in America on a relatively enduring basis, uh, and that the economy here is stronger as well, so it could actually sustain higher interest rates. The, The third factor in all of this is that the dollar obviously plays a safe haven role in global financial markets. There's a lot of concern these days about the global economic picture, a lot of concerns about the global political picture because of what's happening in Ukraine as well as, you know, over Taiwan uh, most recently. Whenever there's that kind of concern and then it filters into economic concern, the dollar tends to perform well. People see it as a safe place to, to park their assets. So all three of these factors, interest rates, the strength of the economy, uh, plus the safe haven role of the dollar, uh, have combined to lead to this really remarkable run-up in the dollar over the past year. Okay, thanks for that, Simon. We're going to let you finish your fillet of fish. Uh, we'll be coming back to you slightly later in this show. So if you've got time, maybe get an apple pie in between. Thank you. I mean, my first impression is that one should just be enormously suspicious of anyone whose go-to McDonald's order is a fillet of fish. But in general, I've always really liked the Big Mac index. I think it's such an intuitive way to get at something as complex as purchasing power parity. And I'm really struck by that 30 to 40% figure. You know, the stereotype I have of the US as a Brit is, you know, a road trip in a big car fueled by impossibly cheap fast food. And that really does not seem to be the case anymore. I would just like to add my suspicions of the, the, the fans of the fillet of fish or the McFish um, burger. I ate many McDonald's burger in my youth, um, but never, never the fish type. But our thoughts on the McDonald's menu aside, I wanted to go into a bit more depth about what's driving the strength of the dollar right now and to see, as we like to do on this show, what the historical parallels there are. So I rang up Stephen Jen. He's the CEO of Eurizon SLJ Capital, an asset management firm. He was previously an economist at both the International Monetary Fund and Morgan Stanley. So you're the source of a theory about the way that the dollar moves specifically. It's called the dollar smile, and it talks about the distinct behavior of the US dollar in comparison to other currencies. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, sure. The idea is very simple, actually. If you can imagine a two-dimensional chart, on the vertical axis, you have the value of a currency. On the horizontal axis, you have the economic growth rate of the country in question relative to the trading partner. I'm basically asking the question, if you look at a currency, say Australian dollar, what tends to happen to the Aussie dollar when the Australian economy, say, grew 10 times faster than its trading partners or was a laggard relative to the trading partners? For 90% of the currencies in the world, if you plotted the chart of the value of the currency versus the relative growth rate, you see a positively slope chart. 
the faster the economy grows, usually you get a higher, stronger currency. That's very intuitive. Mm -hmm. But there's one currency, the US dollar, that has both features. It looks like a smile, a uh, convex relationship that when the US economy grew much faster than the world, and when it grew much slower in the world, in both situations, the dollar historically tended to be very strong. It is in the middle where the US economy grew at roughly the same pace as the rest of the world. That's when the dollar can weaken quite a bit. And this curve, this convex curve, looks like a smile. We call this dollar smile. So if you think about that sort of model, you know, the dollar doing well in both periods of real concern about U.S. and global growth and, and when the U.S. economy is doing really well, where do you see us right now in terms of the position on your spectrum? It's hard to put it on this map, I must say. The dollar smile is not the best map to use to point where we are. This is unusual because in most of the cases, business cycles that I've watched in my 25 years of my career in FX, I've never encountered a case where there are such distinct drivers of the three economic blocks. So for the US, public enemy number one is, of course, inflation. We are talking as if there's a global inflation problem, which is not, not true. Public enemy number one in China is COVID. And you can say that there's a second enemy, which is the property market instability. But COVID is probably number one. For Europe, it's different again. The public enemy number one there is the repercussions from the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. So as opposed to the previous global cycles, this time around, we're looking at three big blocks, three economic blocks being driven by three completely different shocks. And therefore, applying such a model, dollar smile model, is a bit awkward, even for me. But in the future, as the U.S. economy recovers or slows, we may be able to apply the dollar smile as the map of choice. And I mean, can you put this in context? How does the strong dollar compare historically? Under Reagan in the early 1980s, we had Reaganomics, which was an expansionary fiscal policy not from spending, but from tax cuts. But that was also the period where Volcker was really tightening the screws. He started from the late 1970s under Carter, but then he continued into the early 1980s. What happened to the dollar was 104% appreciation in the dollar index in the early 1980s, leading to the Plaza Accord of 1985. And if we compare the current episode to the previous, the rally that we have seen in the dollar is very modest, is remarkably modest compared to history. You're sort of suggesting that the rise in the dollar is less than what we've seen before. Do you think some part of that is because the dominance of the dollar is so extreme now and the level of influence and the amount of goods that are invoiced in dollars and the number of commodities priced in dollars, is that higher now than it was in the 1980s or the 1990s? And is that part of why the sort of rise in the dollar recently is a little bit more shallow? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, I don't know why. That makes me, frankly, uncomfortable because if I don't have a clear explanation, then the dollar could actually continue to rise. It doesn't need to stop here. If the dollar were to turn around here, right here, it would be a departure from the historical pattern. So there must be a good reason for the dollar to turn around here. Stephen, that was great. Thank you very much for joining us. That was fun. Thanks.
So I wanted to pick up on a moment that Steve and Jen mentioned there, which is a period in the early to mid 1980s when the dollar was also strengthening pretty rapidly. And this moment, well, it resulted in one of the biggest interventions ever to devalue a currency. Many of the seismic moments in economic history are conducted in secret, and the Plaza Accord was no different. The American-issued summons to this emergency meeting only reached some finance ministers on Friday. France, Britain, Germany and Japan got here in time, but the host, American Treasury Secretary James Baker, with the shortest distance to come, was late. The meeting was the brainchild of James Baker. He'd been President Ronald Reagan's chief of staff during his first term in office. And after Reagan won re-election in 1984... Seems we did this four years ago and... Let me just say, well, you know, good habits are hard to break. He was moved over to head the Treasury Department in January of 1985. One subject dominated his confirmation hearings, the strength of the U.S. dollar. As you know, over the last four years, the dollar has risen by as much as 40% against the currencies of our major trading partners. And that's resulted in a deterioration, a marked deterioration of our relative trade position. Do you believe the dollar is overvalued? And if so, do you think it ever appropriate for the Treasury to act in the international currency markets to try to deal with the problem? I would rather say that the dollar is very, very strong, Senator. The dollar had strengthened in the wake of an intervention we've discussed many times on this show, former Fed Chair Paul Volcker's decision to dramatically raise interest rates to tame inflation at the beginning of the 1980s. But a combination of relatively high interest rates and a growing economy had caused investors to pour money into the U.S. economy, strengthening the U.S. dollar. Baker hinted that his Treasury Department might be willing to intervene. So I have no, I I should not express, nor do I have uh, an opinion on whether our policy of intervening only in in, in where markets are disorderly should be changed. But that's obviously something that should be looked at because some will argue that that could have a dramatic effect on the value of the dollar. But he stopped short of explicitly outlining a plan. Yet as the year went on, the dollar continued to strengthen. That worried not just Baker, but Reagan's economic advisor, Alan Greenspan. Uh, There's no question that if we could wave a wand in the United States and either stop the rise of the dollar or even better, bring it down in a graduated, moderated manner, there's no doubt that that we would do that immediately. Baker realized he had to act. And so we decided to try to coordinate the underlying economic fundamentals of the major currency countries and to be effective we concluded we would have to do that with some regularity. My first stop uh, at this, uh, in this effort at international economic policy coordination, frankly, was the White House. As Baker recalled in a speech in 2015 to the Baker Institute on the anniversary of the accord, having convinced Ronald Reagan of the need to intervene, he then set about convincing his foreign counterparts. We made secret contacts with the finance ministries of the four other major currency countries, Germany, Japan, the United Kingdom, and France. There was predictable skepticism for some time, 
But as the summer of 1985 wore on, these finance ministries began to realize that we were quite serious uh, about what we were discussing with them. Our leverage with these uh, foreign countries and other finance ministries, of course, was that if we didn't act first, the protectionists in Congress would throw up trade barriers. And so the last minute invitations went out and the finance ministers of all the countries gathered in New York. Whilst the governor of the Bank of England paced about the hall, Mr. Lawson and the other finance ministers waited in their suites. Mr. Baker eventually arrived, leaving the clear impression that the Americans are running this show. By the end of the weekend, the five countries involved had agreed to bring down the value of the dollar. They issued public statements and engaged in foreign exchange intervention, selling dollars in exchange for other currencies. And the results were really quite spectacular. Despite strong resistance from traders, the dollar dropped against other currencies quickly and substantially, but also in an orderly way. In the two years after the accord, the dollar fell by 40%. America's trade deficit shrunk, protectionist policies were avoided, and the group that met eventually became the G7 Ministers Group, which continues to meet today. I did not know that that is where the G7 group came from. Neither did I. Well, we're going to get Simon's reaction to all of that. I hope he has now finished his lunch uh, after the break. But before that... It's the part of the show... Where we ask you... To take out a subscription to The Economist. It's not too late to get our special summer issue, which in addition to a gripping story by our colleague Nick Pelham about Mohammed bin Salman also has a lovely meditation on the power of the sun by our obituaries editor, Anne Rowe. You can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you already subscribe, thank you so much, you should check out our newsletters, including Money Talks and The Bottom Line. They are available at economist.com slash newsletters. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now, I wanted to, as promised, bring Simon back in. Hi, Simon. Hey, Mike. How was your lunch? How was your uh, fillet of fish? Uh, it was, you know, it's been uh, several years since I've had one, and it was uh, surprisingly scrumptious and delicious. There you go. A new a new customer gained. Um, so we've just been uh, hearing about the Plaza Accord. It, it feels pretty difficult to imagine something equivalent to that happening today. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, both to get that level of agreement amongst policymakers, because obviously the number of countries that would be involved in it would be uh, far more than in 1985, 
And then number two, just based on you know the history of the past few decades of currency trading, I think markets would be quite skeptical uh, about the commitment to, to actually follow through in any kind of substantive way. And I think we should also say it's not totally obvious that the Plaza Accord was a particularly resounding success. One of the reasons I've long been fascinated by this particular moment is the sort of Japanese economic history of it. And there's a decent amount of evidence that, you know, the the intervention to devalue the dollar and the knock-on effect of an extremely strong yen was one of the contributing factors to the huge asset bubble that formed in Japan in the latter half of the 1980s. And it led to the lost decade in Japan, which is something the country's still very much grappling with. And it's all a long way of saying that, uh, you know, the temptation to intervene in currency markets and to reset them to level that might seem more normal has the potential for really devastating unintended consequences and that might make it a bad idea to attempt to do it all. That's that's right. I mean, as you know, of course, there's no such thing as a one-handed economist. And so I think the, the debate about the Plaza Accord and its negative effects in Japan, some would say that it wasn't so much the currency intervention that led to the problems, but the policy response in Japan and this desire to keep monetary policy excessively loose to cushion the strong yen, which then led to the bubbles. So there was kind of a, a two-step thing there. Um, having said that there's unlikely to be anything like the Plaza Accord, there is also you know, another history of, of the last few decades of currency policy, which is that the U.S. is fairly unique among big, big economies in more or less consistently pursuing a strong exchange rate, a strong dollar policy. But there are times at which certain kind of well-timed comments by senior U.S. officials, by the Secretary of the Treasury in, in particular, can actually succeed in more or less talking down the dollar, or at least limiting its strength for a time. Um, so Robert Rubin in, in the late 1990s, you know, through into the early 2000s, that had an impact on the dollar. Um, so, you know, we'll see how, how the global conversation evolves, but it is conceivable that we might hear more from Secretary Yellen in the coming months, and that could be something that, along with kind of shifting economic fundamentals, might limit the dollar's strength going forward. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think so much has changed since the 1980s that it might make, you know, something like the Plaza Accord impossible. But the thing that seems to be constant between that period and now is that the dominance of the dollar is, is the constant factor. The reason we pay so much attention to the strength of the dollar is that it's so dominant. You're a former China correspondent, so you've been in the weeds of the discussion before about whether the dollar might be supplanted, particularly by the Chinese yuan. What do you make of that sort of argument? I mean, it seems, it's always seemed a distant, if not far-fetched prospect and it seems even more distant and even more far-fetched today that the, the UN, the RMB, uh, would be a rival to the dollar. Of course, the basis of dollar strength uh, is not just the size of the US economy, it's all of the institutions that go along with it, the strong rule of law, the belief that uh, investors will be able to have a solid claim on their assets, the belief that they'll always be able to swap their dollars into other currencies, if you look at the direction of Chinese policy, uh, you know, although they've been talking about trying to promote the RMB as an international reserve currency for more than a decade now, the last couple of years of Chinese financial policy have been even more erratic uh, with the capital account closure or, or semi-openness, you know, even stronger relative to, to other currencies. So, you know, it, it's 
inconceivable that in terms of any kind of short-term time horizon, uh, the RMB would be a viable candidate to uh, rival the dollar. Hopes that the euro might you know, emerge as a rival. They look a little bit stronger in the sense that at least rule of law and institutions in Europe are stronger and they're kind of inching towards something like a common bond market, but, but there's still some distance away from it. You know, so ultimately, those are the two possible currencies that really could rival the dollar, uh, and they're still far, far from doing so. So it sounds like we are likely to be in a world with both a dominant dollar and a strong dollar for a while. That's great if you're looking to get a relatively cheap Big Mac in Britain or Japan or Germany. But it looks like the countries that really struggle with the effect of a rapidly strengthening dollar, which is, you know, a lot of emerging economies around the world are going to be bearing the brunt of that. I think that's absolutely right. And so it's, you know, when we talk about the Big Mac index and, and we record this episode partly for McDonald's, uh, it sort of lends a certain comedic value to exchange rates. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that, you know, it's actually a matter of incredible seriousness and growing severity, really, for emerging markets, those with high dollar debts uh, around the world that are affecting people's livelihoods. And so uh, it's, you know, it really is not a laughing matter. Simon, I'm going to stop you there because next week's episode will be all about the current and coming pain for emerging markets. We're going to look into that in a lot more depth. Thank you so much for joining us, doing the incredibly difficult work, the sort of journalistic shoe leather of going to McDonald's for lunch for us. This, this has been a difficult assignment, Mike, but uh, you know, I, I, I don't shrink in the face of these kinds of challenges. Cheers, Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Is it weird that I now want a fillet fish? Simon Rabinovich is a fish fluencer. That is absolutely dreadful. I must admit, I had a sort of existential moment in recording where I wasn't sure whether it's fillet, as apparently Americans call it, or fillet, which feels a lot more natural to me. Um, if you've got thoughts on that, you can email us or, or keep them to yourself, by all means. But before we delve into the discussion of how the dollar affects emerging markets, I wanted to speak to one more person about what Simon mentioned there about the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency and whether or not this moment of strength is a sign that its dominance is secure or the reverse. So I rang up Megan Green. She's a senior fellow at Brown University and global chief economist for Kroll. Megan, thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So, Megan, you've written before about the, the dominance of the dollar. And I think sometimes we get the sort of concepts mixed up here. The strength of the dollar against other currencies on the one hand and the dominance of the dollar as a sort of godfather figure in currency markets on the other hand. What do we mean when we talk about the dominance specifically? So when we talk about the dominance of the dollar, we're talking about the use of the dollar in all kinds of transactions and the holding by central banks of the dollar above all other currency, which all make the dollar the global reserve currency. The strength of the dollar is just relative to other currencies. It's determined in markets. Uh, it's determined based on potential growth and central bank action and risk, a whole bunch of other factors. Um, but they're fairly separate. What do you make of efforts to dethrone the dollar, to perhaps put another currency on top of the sort of pyramid there? So I don't think they're likely to work. It's worth pointing out that the dollar's share in foreign exchange reserves has fallen pretty significantly since 2000. So in 2000, it was the dollar was about 71% of foreign exchange reserves held by central banks globally. 
by the third quarter of last year, it was only 59%. So it's fallen pretty significantly. That being said, the dollar's still way ahead of the second place currency, the euro. And most of the the diversification away from dollar reserves, some flowed into renminbi, but most of them, about 75% of them, went into smaller Western economies or smaller developed economies like Australia, Canada, South Korea, Sweden, also Singapore. And so you have seen some diversification away from the dollar, but if most of those Forex reserves are going into these smaller developed economies, you know, most of them, actually all of them are, are backed by Federal Reserve swap lines. So in a crisis, those other currencies effectively act like the dollar because they're backed by the dollar. Um, so I think some of these attempts to kind of diversify away from the dollar haven't really effectively done that. In, in terms of digital currencies, I'd also point out that some are saying that maybe uh, stable coins could become the new global reserve currency. The vast majority of them are actually backed by dollars, so it's not so different from, from what we already have. So there's this running discussion among economists and economic historians about whether the sort of dominance of the dollar, that the, the U.S. dollar's global role is a good thing or a bad thing for the U.S. Tell us a little bit about that sort of that conversation, that debate, and, and where you fall on that subject. Yeah, so there's a connection between the global reserve currency and, and your capital account and therefore a connection with your current account as well. And so um, if you have the global reserve currency and it is the safe haven asset, then you have kind of an endless demand for dollar-denominated assets. And that contributes ultimately to a current account deficit. And so if what you really care about is bilateral trade flows, then you should ditch having the global reserve currency. And that, that might be true. I guess my, my counter argument would be that you really just shouldn't care about bilateral trade flows. That's not the most important thing. It's like looking at my balance with Costco, for example, and seeing that I have a huge deficit because I buy a lot there and not considering the fact that I have a huge surplus with my employer because they pay me. You know, you can't look at one without the other. You have to look at the, the whole holistic picture. So I would say that, you know, it has been an exorbitant privilege to have the global reserve currency, not an exorbitant burden as those who are really concerned about our current account deficit and bilateral trade flows consider it. Um, it does mean that the U.S. can issue more debt without facing investor strikes because we have the global reserve currency. There's insatiable demand for U.S. treasuries. That means that um, you know investors are happy to pick it up whatever our fundamentals. At some point that won't be true, but we clearly haven't reached that yet. And we've, we've managed to rack up a pretty significant debt burden in the U.S. So um, I think actually it has been a huge benefit for the U.S. economy, not a burden at all. Okay, Megan, that's absolutely great. Thank you very much for making the time. We are going to hear from you again next week as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Alice, Samaya, any final thoughts? Yeah, that there have been a lot of predictions about the demise of the dollar and none have gone particularly well. I remember there's a certain amount of scorn when I occasionally brought this up in Washington, D.C. circles. I think the one one thing to highlight, though, is that normally what we see in the U.S. is that periods of extreme dollar strength tend to be followed by surges in protectionist instincts, right, or, or 
accusations that other countries are manipulating their currencies. That doesn't seem to have happened this time. And and that may be just because it happens with a lag. It may be because some of the policy debate with the absence of Donald Trump is just a bit healthier. People don't want to dive right back into that kind of argumentation right now. It also could be partly because the dollar strength is so broad right now. Yeah, and I mean, it, it definitely helps that a strong dollar will help bring down inflation, which is something that policymakers are also concerned about. But still, it does feel like we've reached this sort of seminal moment of dollar strength, especially hitting parity with the euro. And that summit of the mountain feeling always makes it feel like something has got to happen to turn it around. But it really is hard to see what that might be through any of the normal lenses that we use to think about this. My first job out of university was on an FX trading desk in London, and we were all obsessed with, you know, Stephen Jen's smile theory. But under that framework, I can really only see a very narrow outcome for the US economy that could result in the dollar weakening. If the economy keeps going like the clappers and interest rates keep climbing, that will probably keep the dollar very strong. Maybe the rapid tightening in monetary policy is going to cause a sort of slowdown in activity, but that would probably lead to that sort of risk-off fear scenario that he talked about. So only in the Pollyanna-ish world where we pull off a very soft landing can I see how you'd end up getting a weaker dollar from here. And at the same time, strength should or could encourage people to move more quickly away from the dominance of the dollar. But Megan doesn't seem to think that's going to happen, or very likely, neither does Sumeya, and I'm inclined to agree with both of their assessments. So, you know, if the dollar is just going to stay strong and stay dominant, the big question is, can people handle that? Which is why I'm so looking forward to our episode next week. So I used to cover currency markets specifically in a previous job, probably around the same time Alice is working on an FX desk. And what always jumped out and made it particularly fun for me is precisely something that Stephen Jen told us, which is that other major markets have these widely accepted models of how they work based on cash flows and interest rates and valuations. And currencies basically don't. And it ends up with loads of sort of hand waving and voodoo and different theories about why they're going up and down. But it also drives exactly the sort of uncertainties and crises you can see cropping up right now, because the level of predictability is so low. And as Alice says, the consequences can be so extreme when they really blow out. So before we wrap things up, shall we do our statistics of the week? Yes, we should. I will go first. My stat of the week this week is 40,000 people, which is the number of people that were served by the McDonald's in Pushkin Square when it opened. And it was the biggest ever opening day for a McDonald's. In second place is the Tiananmen Square opening in China. And in third place is the Ho Chi Minh City one in Vietnam. And back when I lived in Singapore... I met the owner of the Vietnamese McDonald's franchise and he was obsessed with the idea that the biggest McDonald's opening days ever had all been in communist countries. And his explanation for why that was the case was that communism and McDonald's have the same brand colours. <laughs> that is absolutely great. Um, my statistic is actually also McDonald's related. So we're all thinking on a theme this week. And it is 8.4 billion. Um, 
I've got to admit, I was slightly obsessed with McDonald's's business model. McDonald's is actually really, when you look at it, more of a real estate company than a food company. So the $8.4 billion is the amount of money that McDonald's collects in rents from its franchised restaurant, which is almost twice the $4.6 billion that they collect in royalties on the sales they make. So they actually make a lot more money from their franchisees on the land and the real estate than they do on the burgers. Okay, great. I'm now feeling left out as I don't have a McDonald's related stat. So mine is 22, which is the number of goals England's Lionesses scored over the whole tournament, the the UEFA Women's European Championships. That is a world record, the most goals ever scored within that tournament, culminated in the team winning. And everyone in the UK is very happy about that, despite the fact that we are still paid in pounds. Still salty about that, eh? A little bit. Thanks this week go to Stephen Jen and Megan Green. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us and send statistics just to me at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Alan Haberjack. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is James Stickland. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.